What's up, Salt Company? Jack, good to see you. Salt Company, good to be with you tonight. My name is Colin. I have the privilege of working on staff here. Uh, tonight, guys, we're going we're gonna to open the Bible. We open the Bible every week here at Salt Company. We love the Bible. We think it is God's word to us, God's voice revealed in his word. And so tonight, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. So if you have a, a Bible, uh, would love you to pull it out. Turn to the book of Isaiah. It's a little over halfway through your Bible, and we will be in Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48. As you uh, turn there, I have a question for you. Have you ever taken anything for granted? Never taken anything for granted? Uh, Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I came up with a, a list of 10 things that I've taken for granted. There's a, there's a few, uh, you know, special shout outs at the end. Uh, most obvious one, oxygen. We all need it. None of us think about it. We need it. Uh, mo- more recently though, I've been, I've been realizing that I take steel beams for granted. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but we're a part of redemption. We just heard about that. Redemption's building a church building. Come on. So you guys can pray. If you're not, if you're not a senior, we are praying that we will meet for Salt Company in a building that's our own next year. That's fun. Anyway, I'm hearing about how expensive steel is. We're spending over a million dollars on steel. Uh, and so uh, Rachel and I gave just like a little bit of money to, to help build our church. And, and so when I walk into the church, I'm, gonna be, I'm just going to be glowing because I'm going to look at the ceiling and be like, that tiny bolt, I bought a third of it. And I'm just going to be like, Really grateful for my contribution to the kingdom of God, you know? Uh, Something we take for granted, running water. Uh, It'd be a crappy situation if we didn't have it. Uh, Some of you are slower. It's okay. Or you guys just didn't like my dad joke. It's fine. Uh, My Yeti water bottle. Anyone else appreciate their Yeti? Take it for granted. Indestructible. Uh, I saw someone snapping over there. I'll, I'll take it. Anyone... Spark notes in high school, didn't read a book. So thankful I didn't have to read a book in high school. Uh, took, it, took it for granted. Yeah, I heard, I heard someone else shout out my next one, chat GPT. Haven't written a sermon in months. Just like haven't had to write a sermon. It's been great. Uh, <laughs> kidding, guys, I write sermons. Uh, so, yeah, I was, I was struggling to come up with, uh, with the with kind of the last few. So I asked our staff, we have a staff group chat texting in, hey, what's something you take for granted? Uh, Josie texted pretty instantaneously, and she said turn signals. So she for sure wasn't texting while driving, guys. No way, no how. But but I'm like with her. I'm with her, you know? Like when you're driving and the person in front of you puts on their brake lights, and you say this in a really godly way because you don't get frustrated, but you're like, you know, in all your patience and kindness, you say what form of darkness has overtaken the person driving that car in front of me? Turn signals. Uh, Austin said cups. I, <laughs> he likes hydration? I mean, I don't know. He was like saying, like, think you'd have to drink out of a hose, but I don't know, cups. Uh, Abby, Abby said countertops. You should have let whatever was... You should have let whatever thought you had cook a little longer. <laughs> last one, last one, last one. The thing, the thing I, I take for granted the most, not being a Green Bay Packers fan. Really grateful for that. 
All right. Joking, joking. Uh, on, a, on a more serious note, on a more serious note, do you guys ever feel like you take God for granted? That you want the blessings of God without needing to pursue a relationship with God? That's what's happening to the people of Israel in this text. They take God for granted. They want all God has to offer, but they don't want to be in relationship with him. And so tonight, the question that we're going to answer is this. What does God have to say to those who take him for granted? What does God have to say to those who take him for granted? So before we do that, we got to, we got to more clearly define what it means to take God for granted. And Isaiah 48 tells us, so this is what God is saying to his people through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 48, starting in verse 1. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but do not, but not in truth or right. Right? So what is happening? God's saying to the people of Israel, hey, you call yourselves Christians, you call yourselves my people, but you don't believe in me and you don't desire the things that I desire. You want what I have to offer, but you don't want me. They wanted the blessings of God, the protection of God. They wanted to call themselves the people of God without needing to conform to the will of God. That's what they wanted. Essentially, they wanted a life of grace, of freedom, and of love without needing to pursue a relationship with God himself. So what that means for us is whether you come in here as a Christian or whether you don't know what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, I think a lot of us take God for granted. We want what God has to offer without wanting God himself. And so what is God going to say? I think some of us think like God's just going to lean in. Just tell them how, how bad they are. How wrong they are. And I think we think that because we think that's what God would do to us. But instead, God's actually just going to tell them not about how they're wrong, but just simply about who he is. God says, if you want to associate with me, you have to know who I am and what I'm like. And so tonight, I'm going to share five things that God reminds Israel of, and I think that God is telling us. Five things from Isaiah 48 about God. Five things that gave Israel a new perspective, and I think if we lean in, might give us a new perspective as well. Five things that make God God. Five things... God says to those who take him for granted, first one, that he is the divine creator. This is what God says to Israel. I am the divine creator. Look at verse 12 with me. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. You see, God's first reminder to the people of Israel is that he alone is creator. 
that he laid the foundations of the earth, that he placed the galaxies far beyond what any scientific discovery could measure, that he made the world to produce vegetation and animals to adapt to their environments, that he made the elements and he made them in a way that they can form together to make new substances. And he did all this just by speaking. He spoke the world into existence and Christians argue over, over like how the, the earth was created, but Christians do not over, argue over the fact that God created and that God created out of nothing. So he's not like us. You see, when we create things, we take what already exists and we mold it and we shape it and we change it and we make it into something new, but God takes what doesn't exist and speaks something into existence. He's creator. So out of nothing, God created parts of the ocean that are yet to be discovered. Galaxies that no matter how much scientific advancement happens, there's no way any human will get to in their lifetime. Things that we have yet to discover. So much of our world has yet to be discovered. And so the question is, why did God create it? If there are things created that no human will ever discover, the answer is not he created it so that we could discover it. The answer is that he created every inch of creation so that every piece of it would shout for his glory. Everything in all creation screams for the glory of God. That he created Mount Everest as just a picture of his power. Not as some adventure to to measure human capability, but to describe to you that Mount Everest to him is an anthill. He created the the human brain in, in all its complexity and intricacy to show you what simplicity looks like to him. That wasn't hard for God. The goal of creation is not to show the extent of what God could do, but to show you a preview of what he is doing. It's all about his glory. Recently, I came across a quote by an American physicist named Charles Meisner. So Charles Meisner talks about the idea of the complexity of the world, and he, and he mentions Albert Einstein, and it was a helpful quote to me, and so I was wondering if it'll be a helpful quote to you. This is what he says. It's a long, little bit longer quote, so stay with me. I do see the design of the universe as essentially a religious question. That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. It's very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little regard for organized religion, although he strikes me as a basically very religious man. He must have looked at what the at what their preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. That's, that is that they weren't telling truths about God. That's what that word means. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined. They were just not talking about the real thing. I love this. My guess is that he simply felt that the religions that he had come across did not have pro- a proper respect for the author of the universe. Einstein, why did Charles Meisner believe that he wasn't a religious man? Because the way that he heard pastors 
preachers and Christians talk about the world was that they were just like selling God far too short. And man, if there's a heartbeat of my life, it will not be that I sell God too short. Is that God is far more majestic than you have ever imagined. Here's what it is like. God's creation is like a paint swatch. A simple, small, free, Home Depot paint swatch compared to the mural of his majesty. God is so much greater than even the greatest part of all of creation. And so my question is, does that describe your view of God? Or do you shrink him to something smaller? As Meisner says, do you have proper respect for the author of the universe? Okay, that's first one, divine creator. The next ones are going to go a little faster. Number two, that he is eternally uncreated. He's eternally uncreated. Verse 16, Isaiah 48, this is what it says. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. So not only did God create all of the world that we know, everything in the universe, but he himself has never been created. There's an eternity behind us in which God has always existed. And so before he created the world, he existed and was perfectly content. He didn't need anything from anyone. He was perfectly content in himself. What what I'm saying is God is self-sustaining. He doesn't need anything outside of of himself. So where we need food and oxygen, water, sleep, God is utterly self-sustaining. He does not need any of those things. Everything he needs is found in his own character. So there's an infinite amount of time in history where God has existed perfectly, perfectly contently. That he's the uncreated creator. Which if that's true, that means that God does not need anything from anyone. So my question for you is, do you think God needs something from you? He's eternally uncreated. Number three, he's the ultimate leader and teacher. This is what verse 17 says. Thus says the Lord, your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. That's Isaiah talking. Now he's going back to speaking for the Lord. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Here's what I found about the world. It's that everyone follows someone. Even the greatest minds and innovators of our age are following after someone. They're just coming up with a better way to do it. Coming up with a slightly different idea. Like all the most brilliant people you know probably have bookshelves of books that they've read, and that proves my point. They all read, they all learn from others who have written, others who have something to say about their area of expertise. Everyone who aspires for greatness is following in the footsteps of someone else. Like, I I learned this a little while ago about Kobe Bryant. So Kobe Bryant became, the at, at the time, probably the greatest basketball player that was living. Like, no one had anything to say about how to improve his game because he was likely the greatest basketball player living at the time. And so you know what he did? He went into a shark cage and he swam with sharks. This is a real story about Kobe. Why? Because he wanted to learn from sharks 
about how to, how to attack, how to like be ferocious, right? So, okay, he didn't have anything more to learn about basketball, but he had something to learn from sharks. What I'm saying is God could read every word that's ever been written on a sheet of paper and learn nothing. He knows everything. He's not following in anyone's footsteps. Everyone's following in his footsteps. He's the ultimate leader and teacher. And so do you see him as your leader and as your teacher? Are you willing to follow him? Number four, ways that we take God for granted and how God responds is that he is infinitely wise. This is what verse 18 says. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. So in this, God is basically making an if-then statement. If you follow my commands, then you get peace, righteousness, and legacy. And if you know anything about Eastern culture a couple thousand years ago, is that those were the three things that they valued the most in all likelihood. They wanted peace from surrounding nations. They wanted a sense of righteousness before God. And they wanted a legacy or descendants to come after them so that their name would not be forgotten. So if that is what they wanted most, the most true thing of their heart, what God is saying is, I know how to fulfill the desires of your heart. I know how to fulfill the deepest desires of your heart. That his way of living is better, it's more fulfilling, it leads to a more glorious life. He designed the world, and so therefore he knows how the world works which means if you want something from the world, he knows how to give it to you. What I've found in that is that modern psychology is just catching up to this. Like, they're just figuring it out. Recently, I watched this TED Talk about, uh, from a psychologist. He's known as like a positive psychology, basically a how to make people happier and feel better. And it was this TED Talk, he gave four points on psychology and how to improve your basically state of happiness. These were the four. Positive emotions. Emphasize positive emotions, love, peace, contentment. Second one, community. Have robust, meaningful relationships. Meaning, live for something bigger than yourself. An accomplishment. Work for something that matters. And I'm like, so everyone, like people, you could hear the people in the audience and they're like, wow, that's really profound. And I'm like, man, that would be profound if it was two millennia earlier when Jesus said it. I mean, like, it's Jesus, read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is like, hey, contentment, it's a good way to live. He says, hey, here's a good way to shape and form your relationships in order to live a life of flourishing. He says, you want meaning? Pray for my kingdom to come. And he's, Talking about accomplishment. What he says? Says you are the salt of the earth. Come on, salt company, let's go. Guys, American psychology is catching up to things Jesus has been saying for 2,000 years that's written in the Bible in front of you. 
God knows how to give you the deepest desires of your heart, a life of joy, a life of meaning, a life where you are content, not striving for something else, a life free from anxiety. The Bible talks about all those things. And God can actually give them to you. And so do you trust more in the wisdom of man or the wisdom of God? Fifth one, maybe most important one. What God has to say to those who take him for granted. God is radically for himself. Go back to verse 9 in Isaiah 48. This is what he says. This is God talking again. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from, for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? This last line. My glory I will not give to another. See what God is after? He's after his own glory. You want to know what God loves above everything else in the world that he's ever created? He loves his own glory. You want to know what the ultimate mission of God is? To bring his name glory. God is radically for himself. All of God's actions throughout all of human history are the actions that he deemed would bring him the most glory. It's always been about his glory, and it always will be about his glory. So, what is hard to you, I'm not saying it's not hard. It's really hard, and it's for God's glory. What is good to you, is for God's glory. What doesn't make sense to you is for God's glory. Which, it makes it sound like God has been on an eternity-long ego trip. Like that somehow he doesn't feel good enough about himself that he needs to to do things that, that scream for his glory. But let me give you two reasons why I think God being for his glory is for the best of the entire world. First one, God must love the greatest thing in the universe because we don't trust people that don't love great things. Like people that post on their Instagram and are like, hey, you should buy this product. And you're like, that product is kind of crappy. You don't trust that person because people that love bad things, you don't trust people that love bad things. But God has, so God has to love the ultimate thing, the most important thing. And so for God to be a God that we love and respect, he has to love the thing that is most lovable and most respected in all the universe, and that is himself and his glory. You see, God has to love his own glory for him to be God. Reason number two, God loving his own glory is best for us. You see, here's why. Because when God loves his own glory, 
that means that the thing that God loves or God's love is not dependent on us. Which means your sin cannot decrease God's love for his own glory. In fact, why it's so good for you is that God, when he wrote the DNA of the universe, decided that the thing that would bring him glory is his love for sinners. So God being about his glory means God is for sinners. But your sin does not change God's love for sinners because it's not his love for sinners that he's about. It's, for, it's his glory that he's about. Which means God is in this cycle of being for his glory and his glory being displayed in loving sinners. So God's in this cycle of constantly, always pursuing and loving sinners. Which means he's pursuing and loving you. God's being for his glory is the best thing for you. God being for his glory is the thing that sustains our world and the thing that makes him God. So do you love the thing that the God of the universe loves? Do you love his glory? You see, when you take God for granted, you have to remember who God is. That's all God did in Isaiah 48. He's just like, hey, if you're taking me for granted, why don't you just remember who I am? And so for you... When you take God for granted, you need to remember who he is, that he has created every inch of the known world. That he is eternally uncreated, perfectly content in himself. That he is the ultimate teacher and leader, not needing any advice from anyone here. That he is perfectly wise, and he knows the path to the good life. And that he is radically and unapologetically for his glory. And so... What do you do with that? What do you do when God tells you he's for his own glory? This is what you do. You orient your life around him. You see, God created us to be like him, but we often distort that. So we say we want to be like God, and so the way we most often try to be like God is we say, God, I want to be like you, and so I want to be about my glory. I want the blessings of God without worshiping the person of God. I want to be like you, God, because I want love and grace and peace, but I want to be about my glory. And I think we've distorted that because we have been created in a sense to be like God, but it's in a different sense is that we've been created like God to also be creatures that are about his glory. That we would be people that give our entire lives to the going forth of God's glory. Because if we do anything else, the inevitable end is brokenness because he's the creator of the world and so he knows how the world works so what that means for you is that God gets your allegiance, your worship, your time, your treasures, and your heart. He gets your best days and your worst feelings. He gets your attention, your admiration, and your obedience. Here's, here's what I'll say. 
I know the biggest problem for everyone in this room, including myself. So if you came to Salt Company tonight, like, man, I want to learn something about myself that I can maybe change so I can be a better person, great, here it is. Here's your one thing you can change. Here's the problem with every person in this room is that your view of God is far too small. Your view of God is far too small. He's far more glorious and majestic than you realize. So how do people typically respond to something like that? Man, God is bigger than I thought, so I should probably change my priority list. I've got some priorities, I should maybe shift them around. So if I came in and it was family and then school and then friends and then maybe God, I should probably change that. Maybe God, family, school, friends. I think that response is, is good. It's admirable. It, it's okay, but it's not great. Because inevitably, school's going to get busy, or there's going to be drama within your family, or friends are going to need your attention, and those priorities are going to shift around, and the, what you say is going to, what you say your priorities are isn't going to be actually how you live. We've all experienced that tension before. So I think what you should do is you should just like throw God off your priority list. Maybe even throw out your priority list altogether. And your new priority list should be simple. My priority is to follow the will of God for my heart to be tuned to the worship of God and for all of my life to be pursuing the glory of God. Priority list. Which means... God actually has something to say about your school. God has something to say about how you interact with your family. God has something to say about the way you interact with your friends and and strangers. It's not that God just now has a little bit bigger piece of your time pie, but that God owns your time pie and gets to dictate how you spend it and where your time goes. That God now gets a voice, in fact, the loudest voice over every inch of your life. And that, because God knows how the world works, will actually increase your joy. I think the biggest barrier to joy in your life is not God's inability or unwillingness to change your circumstances. It's that your view of God is too small and your view of what he might be doing isn't sufficient enough. God is for his glory. I just want to stop, though, and address a group of people in the room. Maybe, honestly, maybe this is addressing the whole room. Uh, man, that, that's, like, really hard. If you've experienced things that are really hard, this is a hard message to hear. That God is for his glory. Because maybe you're asking the question, like, Man, how is God for his glory if I lost someone that matters to me? How is God for his glory if when I was little someone took advantage of me physically, spiritually, emotionally? How is God for his glory if I have this mental or physical illness that I feel the weight of every day? How is God for his glory if I've experienced discrimination because of my race, my cultural background, 
How can God be for his glory then? And what I want to say, and the answer to that, I, I don't know. I really don't. But I've encountered God, and I know that he's good. And I know that he's trustworthy. And I know that might be hard and not make sense. And that's, that's the reality of, of faith, that he is good. That even when it doesn't make sense, you can trust him. And that you know that God gets his glory by coming near to you. And by walking with you when it doesn't make sense. And by caring for your heart when you're asking hard questions. God gets his glory by, the pursuit, by his pursuit of sinners. You see, you orient your life around God because you see that it was in his design of the plan of the universe for him to orient his life around you. I love this story from Matthew 16. It's this great story where Jesus is hanging out with his disciples and he asks them, who do you say the savior of the world is? And his disciples have this like funny interaction where they're like, some say it's Moses, some say it's Elijah. And Jesus says, yeah, I know, stop. Who do you think it is? And Peter, and man, I, the more I learn about Peter, the more I like realize I'm a lot more like Peter than I like to be. Uh, Peter says, Jesus, I think it's you, which makes it sound awesome, but just wait until the next interaction Jesus has with Peter. It's like the next scene. The next thing Jesus says is Jesus tells Peter, he says, hey, Peter, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suffer, and I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die on a roaming cross. And you see, Peter now is learning to orient his life around Jesus, and he says, Jesus, no, 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 you don't get it. That's not for your glory. That looks bad, not good on your resume. And Jesus makes one of the strongest statements in the entire Bible. He says to his friend, get behind me, Satan. It's like, that's a pretty strong statement. Why? Why does he say that to his friend? Because what Jesus is saying to Peter is he's saying, Peter, you don't get it. The thing that's going to bring me the most glory is by going to Calvary and dying for sinners. The, I get glory in my pursuit of people like you who are full of sin and full of shame and full of baggage. Because God is most glorified by suffering on a cross. You see, Peter thought that he would be most glorified by getting crowned with a crown of gold, but the ultimate crown of glory was one of thorns. See, Peter thought he'd sit on a throne. The throne just happened to be a cross. Peter thought the banner was going to be the unconquered king. And it was that. It just first came the crucified Jesus and his love of sinners. Jesus is glorified by pursuing people like you and people like me. And what I know about God and his character is that he doesn't change yesterday, today, and forever. And so if that was what was true of God and his interaction with Peter, that is what's true of God in this room and his interaction with you. God is radically for his glory and he gets glory when he pursues sinners. And so maybe you're coming to this room and you're like, I'm too far gone. I'm too broken. I'm too sad. I'm too angry. I'm too confused. And I don't get what God's doing. And what I'm saying to you is you can still have questions and believe that God is pursuing you in that. Because he gets glory by that. You see, God being for his glory is ultimately God being for you. 
So I want to tell you a story of someone who believes this. His name's Terry. Some of you know Terry. He's an elder of our church. He's a great dude. And I just want to tell you how this like translates to Terry's life. I think it matters. So Terry's time with God is a little unique. Terry wakes up every morning, sits in a chair, and he says, I'm not going to leave this chair until I feel what I need to feel. Let me tell you what I think Terry means by that. I think what he means is that he will refuse to leave that chair until his mind is focused on the glory of God, until his schedule is oriented towards the will of God, and until his heart is affectionate for the person of God. And so Terry's maybe sitting in that chair for a few minutes some days and many long minutes other days. But Terry refuses to leave the chair until his life is oriented around the glory of God. And so I'm just wondering, like, what would your life be like if you refused to leave a chair in the morning until your life was oriented around the glory of God? Man, I'm not, I'm not promising your life would get super easy, that it'll all of a sudden make a lot of sense. But what I am promising is that I think you'll experience a joy about your life mattering more than it's ever mattered before. And so would you guys join me in praying that we would have Terry mornings of orienting our hearts towards God? God, I, I don't always understand why your will for the world is for it to be about your glory. I don't always know why the world works the way it does. But God, I do know that your glory is good. It's good for the world. It's good for the people in this room. And it's good for me. Because you are glorified by your love for sinners. And God, I'm experiencing that now. That you are glorified by loving me chief of sinners, one who is lost but now has been found. So God, do that for us. Daily, do that for us right now. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.